the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Uh, looking forward to a conversation this afternoon with the author of a, uh, an amazing book about men and masculinity. All I have to do is find my note here and Nancy Piercy will be our guest. She's written a book that really dispels some of the myths around um, men and masculinity. And she will join us uh, coming up later this hour. So looking forward to that. She's a best-selling author. And um, wow, this is, uh, this is a little embarrassing. I took my notes back to my desk. I'll get them when we go to break. Anyway, it's going to be really good. So stay with us. Really good. Uh, I want to thank um, James Blind for producing Dave King for engineering here in the Portland area. Pedro Bartes for engineering and producing in the Seattle area. At least I got that right. Well, we're going to jump right in with some of the news. Uh, U.S. is sending uh, be ready to deploy orders to select troops as Israel and the Hamas war is escalating. Israel is amassed at the border. And what happens next? We can imagine. But they're trying to give people in Gaza an opportunity to evacuate. Well, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has put in ready to deploy orders for a select number of American troops should Israel need them. The Wall Street Journal reported that around 2000 troops were selected this weekend. But that number has not been confirmed. It's also unclear which exact units were chosen and under which circumstances they would be or could be deployed. Well, top officials stress that this Deployment would not be for combat roles, but for advising and medically supporting Israeli forces. Well, the news comes as the Biden administration has continually expressed support for Israel after the country was attacked by Hamas on the 7th of this month. We must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel, the president said during his uh, his speech last week. We stand with Israel and we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself and respond to this attack. I know many of us are praying for whatever comes next. Well, Russia has been attacking Ukraine for 20 months now. Iran, through its terrorism partner, Hamas, attacked Israel this past weekend. China has been threatening to attack Taiwan. Michael Barone points out that the world is beginning to look a lot like the 1930s when Japan attacked and overran much of China and Nazi Germany and its then ally, the Soviet Union, attacked and overran Poland and the Baltic states. Former President George W. Bush has been ridiculed for describing an axis of evil. But at this point, the axis is Russia, Iran and China seems to be acting in greater unison than the axis of Germany. Japan acted during World War Two. And we have no reason to assume today's axis will turn on itself as when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union in June of 1941. No American military forces are currently fighting in Ukraine. None will surely be fighting in Israel and no forces are currently stationed in Taiwan. But then there were no American military forces fighting in Asia or Europe in June of 1941. Soon there would be. And conceivably, they could be again sometime soon. As military historian Elliot Cohen points out, 
No one lately has a good record of military predictions. What is clear is that the United States will be called on to provide large numbers of conventional weapons to Ukraine and Israel for some unspecified time. This could be a strain for a nation um, concentrating in recent decades on producing high-tech weapons in small numbers. In prolonged on-the-ground fighting, however, numbers matter. Production of artillery shells, munitions, inadequate numbers was the issue that ousted one British prime minister and installed David Lloyd George in World War I. And President Franklin Roosevelt's four-sided enlistment of top corporation executives made America the world's arsenal for democracy in World War II. Well, those were the days when America was capable of building big things in large numbers, a capacity, as liberal writers Ezra Klein and Derek Thompson have lamented, we have lost. One reason is that our leaders, like Roosevelt's capacity to pick men and women good at getting things done, which made big government look misleadingly easy for the next few generations of Americans. Roosevelt's picked the uh, Roosevelt picked rather picked the leaders who built the Pentagon in 15 months. And the generals and admirals who assembled from almost nothing, the 16 million men military that produced the absolute victory that Roosevelt promised in December of 1941. Well, currently, American defense stockpiles are already strained in supplying arms and ammunition to Ukraine and supplying Israel will strain them more. The threat from China has not dissipated in the slightest, while our defense spending and industry remain basically status quo as threats multiply. Former Pentagon official Eldridge Colby wrote, we should have been on a national mobilization footing for our defense industry a long time ago. Well, that would require a major shift in budget priorities away from things such as the Biden administration's $400 billion forgiveness of college loan debts with benefits tilted toward above average income borrowers. Moreover, thanks to inflation stoked by Trump and Biden era stimulus spending, government interests costs have skyrocketed and all American armed forces currently failing to meet recruitment goals need to be expanded. That's with a question mark. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is ordering a vigorous response to Hamas, but in time will have to answer why his government was apparently so unprepared for the October 7th attacks. And in a Fort Wright statement on the 10th of October, President Joe Biden said unambiguously that we're with Israel and we will make sure Israel has what it needs. But in time, he may need to answer why he and his appointees and colleagues in the previous uh, Obama administration tilted U.S. policy toward Hamas, patron Iran, to the point of releasing $6 billion to Iran in September and appointing an Iranian sympathizer and possible spy as a national security, or rather to a national security post. Meanwhile, America is bitterly split on partisan lines with a narrowly Republican House, which nonsensically ousted its speaker, a narrowly Democratic Senate, and a Democratic president who, like Woodrow Wilson and unlike Franklin Roosevelt, has not taken Republicans into his council as the storms of war gather. Stormy weather ahead. And if we remember Churchill, the gathering storm. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. Uh, We'll be back to continue taking a look at the news. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. By the way, our guest coming up later this hour, best-selling author, Professor Nancy Piercy. She's the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the sexes that's coming up later this hour i apologize i'd walked away with my 
notes and for the life of me couldn't remember what on earth was going on. Anyway, um, well, House of Representative uh, Member Scalise stepped aside as uh, he was looking to become the next Speaker of the House. He has bowed out, leaving the House uh, GOP in limbo until, of course, Mr. Jordan stepped in. Uh, He was nominated by secret ballot as their speaker nominee on Wednesday. The House minority, or rather majority leader, Scalise, had already withdrawn his nomination for the gavel. Um, I just shared with my colleagues that I'm withdrawing my name as candidate for the speaker's designee. Uh, That's what he said on Thursday evening. He's expected to remain in his current post as the House majority leader. The Louisiana Republicans spent all day Thursday struggling to lock up enough support from Uh, detractors during closed door meetings and quickly dropped out once it became apparent that he could not uh, could not win with the requisite 217 votes from his own conference to secure the gavel. Well, in steps Mr. Jordan, whose name was on that list, that short list earlier, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. He's the Republican out of Ohio. He appears to be consolidating support within a very fractured Republican conference ahead of a planned vote for speaker on Tuesday. I'm guessing he gets there tomorrow. That's one GOP lawmaker predicting that it will go well for him. Several Republican lawmakers who were critical of Jordan's campaign for the speakership last week said they would support the conservative firebrand on Monday morning after he spent the weekend trying to convince holdouts. Too much is at stake to hand control of the House over to a radical liberal Democrat or Democrats plural, he said, which is why we must elect a conservative as the next speaker. Throughout my time in Congress, I have always been a team player and supported our Republican nominees out of conference. Representative Ann Wagner said in a hopeful sign, I guess, that at least the question will be resolved. Wagner had told reporters on Friday that she could uh, be open to supporting Jordan, but hoped someone else would uh, get into the race. Jim Jordan and I spoke at length again this morning, and he has uh, uh, allayed my concerns about keeping the government open with conservative funding, uh, the need for strong border security, our need for constituent, uh, in, uh, consistent international support in times of war and unrest, as well as the need for stronger protections against the scourge of human trafficking and child exploitation, she also said earlier today. Jim Jordan is our conference nominee, and I will support his nomination for speaker on the floor. While he's still facing some evident GOP opposition, it appears to be far less than the 55 Republicans refused in a secret ballot vote last week to commit to voting for him on the House floor. He said on Monday that he's to hold a housewide vote on his leadership at noon on Tuesday, no matter what. Meanwhile, the Ohio Republican has also faced concerns from moderates about his alliances with former President Donald Trump and his tenure as chairman of the hardline right House Freedom Caucus. Jordan scored a key victory there when Representative Ken Calvert, whose district is rated a toss-up by the nonpartisan Cook Political Report, wrote on X, Keeping America safe is my top priority in Congress. After having a conversation with Jim Jordan about how he must get the House back on a path to achieve our national security and appropriations goals, I will be supporting him for House Speaker on the floor, end quote. And before that, House Armed Services Committee Chairman Mike Rogers out of Alabama, stunned political watchers on Monday, um, this morning, I should say, when he said that he'd back Jordan as well. Rogers said he was staunchly against Jordan last Friday and also suggested late last week that Republicans may have to work with Democrats to find a new leader. We're still the majority party. We're willing to work with them, but they got to tell us what they need, he told reporters. 
Well, Roger said this morning that he and Mr. Jordan had two cordial, thoughtful, productive conversations over the past two days and that he would be supporting him for speaker. Meanwhile, Representative uh, Don Bacon, the Republican out of Nebraska, a moderate, who said um, who has not said whether he will vote for Jordan, bashed the notion that he would work with Democrats on an alternative candidate for their own party. By the way, this is just stupid and a 100 percent falsehood. Not a single, not one Republican in the House will be voting for Mr. Jeffries. Don't fall for social media spin and pressure campaign to elect a certain Republican, he said on X. Well, a source familiar with the discussions told Fox News Digital that Jordan had been working through the weekend to unite the conference. Jordan worked the phones aggressively throughout the weekend, having discussions with members on how to best unite the conference. He's maintaining that momentum and is actively meeting with his colleagues in person ahead of Tuesday's vote. So, again, we're talking Eastern time, but Tuesday at noon, there will be a vote to see if there will be a Speaker of the House, Jim Jordan, assigned. Well, Israel has warned the 1.1 million people living in the north of Gaza to evacuate the area within 24 hours as a humanitarian step in order to minimize civilian casualties ahead of the military's response to Hamas terrorist attacks. Israel Defense Forces spokesperson Jonathan Kornrikas, or something very like that, shared the, the message, he said, was sent to citizens in Gaza on X, formerly known as Twitter, on Friday morning. The IDF calls for the evacuation of all civilians from Gaza City, from their homes southwards for their own safety and protection, and to move to the area south of the Wadi Gaza, the River Gaza, as shown on the map. He explained that telling people to move south of the river uh, makes the direction clear and understandable for anybody, regardless of whether or not they had a map. Uh, He said that the evacuation order is for safety purposes, adding that civilians uh, will not be able to return to Gaza City until another announcement clearing the area is made. He also said that uh, said to not approach the area of the security fence with Israel for reasons that don't need to be explained. New York City beefed up police presence uh, for Global Day of Jihad. Thankfully, there wasn't much to um, uh, to that call for global jihad as Hamas leadership called for the global day of jihad on Friday. New York officials beefed up the metropolitan police presence despite there being no in uh, no specific or credible threats. Well, a former consultant with the Internal Revenue Service pled guilty on Thursday for leaking tax information about former President Trump and others to news outlets between 2018 and 2020. According to the Justice Department, Charles Littlejohn, 38, disclosed the tax returns of thousands of the nation's wealthiest individuals to news organizations and tax information associated with high-ranking government officials uh, to a second news outlet. Trump is not named in the complaint. He pled Guilty Thursday to one count of unauthorized disclosure of tax return and return information. Attorney General Merrick Garland said that Little John betrayed the public's trust by stealing confidential information, by using his role as a government contractor to gain access to private tax information, steal that information and disclose it publicly. Charles Little John broke federal law and betrayed the public's trust. He went on to say the Justice Department um, uh, uh, confirmed that Little John's access of the tax returns on an IRS database, a database rather, was saved um, on his uh, private storage device, including an iPod. Little John will be sentenced on the 29th of January next year and could face a maximum penalty of five years in prison.
House Republicans are once again left scrambling for a leader, but a vote is expected tomorrow by noon. Whether or not they resolve the issue and can uh, move forward with work that only the House can do remains to be seen, but we'll follow the story. The senator leading the charge uh, for the Biden administration to refreeze the $6 billion in Iranian assets it released last month as part of the prisoner release deal wants the money to instead be given to Israel to help rebuild from the devastating damage caused by Hamas in its weekend attack. Speaking on Thursday, Senator Marsha Blackburn said that she thought the reported quiet understanding reached between the U.S. and Gutter to make sure none of the money be uh, being held in the country as moved was a half measure. She was dead set on making sure the money never reached the Iranians. The letter that uh, I sent that started the uh, ball rolling on this refreezing that money. Nineteen of our senators joined me on that letter. And uh, what we wanted is to make certain that that money never gets to into Iran's hands and it should be frozen. She went on to say. A top aide to President Biden, who was, uh, has close ties to Hunter Biden, even referring to him as a brother in emails, was the first person to take inventory of Biden's documents and materials at his think tank, according to a new timeline released by the House Oversight Committee. The uh, committee chairman, James Comer, pressed the White House earlier this week on an incomplete and misleading timeline. He said that they provided his committee with regard to who had searched through the papers at Washington, D.C. office for the president's think tank the Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. Am Tomasini, a senior Biden aide, inspected the classified documents in March of 21, two months after Biden had taken office and nearly 20 months before they were said to be found, Comer's letter said, citing a letter from a Penn-Biden Center employee. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Reminder coming up later this hour, best-selling author, Professor Nancy Piercy. She's the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll be hearing from uh, Professor Nancy Piercy. She's the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. She'll be joining us in our next segment. Well, former President Trump's mugshot featured on Woke Free Beer becomes a novelty. Conservative dad ultra-right beer company is uh, making a toast to success after limited edition cans featuring the former president. His mugshot raked in big sales for the small brewery. I think it's Uh, Definitely becoming a collectible, the founder and CEO Seth Weathers has said in an interview. Following nearly two weeks of sales, the conservative dad's revenge lager, which dons the iconic photo, is reaching the $1 million sale mark and growing. Harvard President Claudine Gay released a video Thursday evening as the university reels from backlash following a pro-Palestinian statement signed by dozens of student groups holding Israel entirely responsible, that's in quotes, for Hamas terrorist attacks on the country and the subsequent violence upholding in the region, unfolding in the region. Gay's video, which was titled Our Choices, began with her describing the Israel-Hamas war as a moment of intense pain and grief for a great many people in our community and around the world, to which she added that she is experiencing the same feelings. She continued by saying members of the Harvard community have a choice of either to either fan the flames or of division and hatred or to try to be a force for something different and better. People have asked me where we stand, so let me be clear. Our university rejects terrorism. That includes the barbaric atrocities perpetrated by Hamas. Our university rejects hate, 
hate of Jews, hate of Muslims, hate of any group of people based on their faith, their national origin, or any aspect of their identity. Our university rejects the harassment or intimidation of individuals based on their beliefs. On Saturday, not long after Hamas launched its unprecedented attack, um, 34 student organizations signed a statement issued by the Harvard Palestine Solidarity Groups that began by blaming the Israel regime for all unfolding violence. As of Wednesday, at least five of the groups have withdrawn their support of the statement. After days of silence and nationwide backlash toward the university for not addressing the statement, Gay released a, a five-sentence message on Tuesday stating that she does not condemn Hamas uh, she does rather condemn Hamas attacks, but she did not explicitly denounce this, denounce the student group's controversial opinion. Former uh, U- uh, United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley in 2018 warned the United Nations Security Council about the terror threat the Iran-backed Hamas posed to Israel, while also seeking to label it a terror group, both in the chamber and the General Assembly. But the efforts were snubbed or put down by other nations, other members. Haley served as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in 2018, told the body that Hamas had been inciting violence for years long before the U.S. moved to shift its embassy to Jerusalem, as it did in 2018. She sounded the alarm about media reports of plans Hamas made to invade Israel if rioters could break through. They have reported the, that Hamas maps and social media show the fastest routes to reach Israeli communities in case demonstrators make it through the security fence. They have reported on Hamas uh, messages over loudspeakers that urged demonstrators to burst through the fence, falsely claiming Israeli soldiers were fleeing when, in fact, they were not, she told the council at the time. She noted incidents where Molotov cocktails were put on kites and flown into Israel and how key crossing points had been attacked. She also rebuffed calls for additional restraint by Israel by some on the council, calls that have been echoed in recent days since the terror attacks by Hamas. I ask my colleagues here in the Security Council who among us would not accept this type of or would accept this type of activity on our border. No one would. No country in this chamber would act with more restraint than Israel has. In fact, the records of several countries here today suggest they would be much less restrained, end quote. Hamas was not and is not labeled or sanctioned as a terror group by the United Nations Security Council, unlike ISIS and Al-Qaeda. U.S. Customs and Border Protection says four Iranians have been apprehended in Texas since the beginning of the month, adding that they are considered special interest aliens. The uh, Border Patrol sources uh, told Fox News that one Iranian man in his 40s was taken into custody on Sunday morning in Eagle Pass, Texas, after crossing the southern border at about 3 a.m. The source added that the Iranian gave himself up to border protection protection agents After making the illegal crossing, the man, along with uh, other three Iranians, are considered special interests because they are from countries identified by the U.S. government as having uh, conditions that promote or protect terrorism or potential uh, potentially pose some sort of uh, national security threat. Border Patrol has also apprehended an Egyptian man in his 40s separately in the Rio Grande Valley sector. Officials apprehended 19 Iranians, 17 Syrians since Monday. The apprehensions come amid concerns of security and the potential of terrorism after Hamas-led terrorists invaded Israel, killing 1,300 and wounding thousands more. 
Israel's foreign minister, Eli Cohen, spewed staunch words toward the Vatican for not issuing a clear and unequivocal condemnation of the murderous terrorist actions, in quotes, of Hamas, who poured into Israel last week and killed more than 1,300 Israelis in a surprise attack, according to the report. The Times of Israel reported that Cohen told the Holy See's Secretary of Relations with states, Uh, Paul Gallagher, that the people of Israel expect the Vatican to come out with a clear and unequivocal condemnation of the murderous terrorist actions. It is unacceptable that you put out a statement expressing worry primarily for Gazan civilians while Israel is burying 1,300 who were murdered, Cohen said, according to the foreign ministry. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy hauled in $7.4 million during the third quarter of 2023, according to his uh, campaign. The funding includes an in-kind $1 million contribution the biotech multimillionaire made to his own campaign in the third quarter. He also has $4.2 million million cash on hand. Journalist Noah Abrahams has uh, said he quit the BBC over the network's uh, decision not to label Hamas as terrorists during coverage of the group's terror attacks in Israel. But the BBC pushed back on his claim. British Jews are terrified, Abrams said, uh, speaking to Peter Cardwell of uh, Talk TV. I've just made a really monumental career decision and life decision. So as with anyone, I'm going through a really hard time at the moment. Abrahams, he blasted the BBC for using terms such as freedom fighters and gunmen instead of terrorists since Hamas' deadly surprise attack on Saturday. The BBC pushed back, telling Fox News Digital that Abrahams was a freelancer who didn't have any future work lined up with the network. Earlier in the week, BBC World Affairs editor John Simpson published a piece explaining the BBC's decision. Terrorism is a loaded word. Well, yes which people use about an outfit they disapprove of morally. Well, not necessarily. It's simply not the BBC's job to tell people who is to support and who not who to condemn. We are the good guys and uh, who are the bad guys. We regularly point out that the British and other governments have condemned Hamas as a terrorist organization, but that's their business. We also run interviews with guests and, quote, contributors who describe Hamas as terrorists, Simpson continued. The key point is that we don't say it in our voice. Our business is to present our audiences with the facts and let them make up their own minds. How very generous. California Representative Kevin McCarthy called out the uh, eight House Republicans who sided with Democrats in the historic ouster earlier this month, accusing them of disrupting the nation as he vowed to help Representative Jim Jordan become his replacement behind the gavel. And Rite Aid Corporation filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy on Sunday in a financial restructuring effort that included the naming of new leadership as the drug retailer faces lawsuits on accusations of contributing to the opioid crisis. The company said in a news release it initiated a voluntary court-supervised bankruptcy process after setting goals to reduce debt, increase financial flexibility, and execute on key initiatives, including the potential sale of Elixir Solutions, an acceleration in determining the best path forward for some of its stores, and the resolve of legal disputes in an equitable manner. In addition, Rite Aid said it secured a $3.42 billion financing commitment from from lenders, Uh, which is expected to provide sufficient liquidity during the bankruptcy process. Well, coming up, best-selling author, Professor Nancy Piercy, 
She's the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, it probably hasn't escaped your notice that it's become socially acceptable to express open hostility against men, even in respected media outlets. In fact, um, The Washington Post asked the question, why can't we hate men? Almost half of American men agree with the statement. These days, society seems to punish men just for acting like men. Well, in her new book, best-selling author of Love Thy Body, Nancy Piercy, she explains how secularism has villainized the concept of masculinity. In three parts, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, she reveals the surprising answers to questions like, where did the idea come from that masculinity is toxic? And what impact did secularism have on the script for masculinity? And how do Christian men shatter the negative stereotypes despite what you may have been told? Well, when people complain that masculine masculinity is toxic, often uh, they point to evangelical men as their prime example. But findings from the social sciences debunks those charges. We're going to talk to Professor Piercy about her book. But first, a proper introduction. Professor Nancy Piercy is a best-selling author and speaker. She's a former agnostic. She was hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. And yeah, we have her here today. Her work has appeared in The Washington Post, Washington Times, First Things, Human Events, American Thinker, Daily Caller, The Federalist, CNS News, and Fox News. She's appeared on NPR, C-SPAN, and Fox and & Friends. She's currently a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. Her books have been translated into 18 languages and include Total Truth, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and Love Thy Body. Today we're talking about her latest, which is very timely, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Professor Piercy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. This is such a significant issue, and I have to admit that I live in a perpetual state of frustration when I hear references made to men that are degrading. Uh, I was raised by my father along with my mother. I was raised with my two brothers. I'm married to my husband. I am surrounded by men of honor and integrity, and this just chaps my hide. What motivated you to take on this issue? You know, the final reason I decided I had to write this book was because I wanted to get the good news out there. You know, critics have been saying, like you said in the introduction, critics have been saying that evangelical men are exhibit A of toxic masculinity, that any notion of male headship in the home is going to turn them into tyrannical, overbearing, oppressive patriarchs. In fact, let me just give you one quote. It was easy to find them, but here's one quote. It was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement. Hmm. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. And what happened was the social scientists were listening to this and saying, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges, but where's your data? So they went out and did the studies. And in my book, I quote some dozen studies or so, all showing that, in fact, evangelical Christian men test out as the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. Their wives report the highest level of happiness with their husband's love and affection. They spend more time with their children than any other group, 3.5 hours 
per week more than secular men. They divorced at the lowest rate of any group in America, 35% lower than secular men. And then the real surprise is they have actually the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any group in America. And I thought, I have to get this out there. I'm digging in the academic literature, academic journals, in order to find this. It's not out in the public yet, and it's not out in our churches. So we need to get it the good, the good news out into our churches so that churches can encourage and support men who are doing a good job. I have a, a graduate student who is the head of the women's ministry at a large Baptist church here in Houston. And she said, on Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell the mothers they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. So I would like churches to stop scolding and start getting this data out in this public realm. You know, this is not a pep talk from a religious leader. This is solid empirical research. This is evidence-based findings showing that Christianity does have the power to reconcile the sexes, as I put it in my subtitle. Well, it's so encouraging to hear that. It's not surprising to me because that's what I uh, believed to be the case before. But these days, you know, scientific fact and research is oftentimes shunned in favor of the narrative that we've already decided upon. And then we're going to run with that. Do you think this will impact the church as it ought uh, by reminding us that God actually knew what he was doing when he assigned the sexes and the roles within the sexes and and tell men that they are to love their wives and their families in the same way that Christ loved the church and laid himself down for her? Uh, Is it going to make a difference that it's going to be marked? I think it's already making a difference because part of my book also just looks at surveys of how Christian men actually behave. You see, again, we're we're listening to secular critics, and the critics are saying, you know, these men who believe in any sort of male headship are going to be tyrannical and abusive. And so they went out and looked at these men, and they interviewed them and their wives and their families. And I was shocked. To tell you the truth, I was blown away by how positive their results were. I didn't expect to find that Christian men would, would treat the subject of headship and submission in such a loving, respectful, mutual way, uh, they were asked, you know, what do you think it means and how do you live it out in your life? Some people have said, well, why didn't you go to the theologians? Why didn't you go to the spokesman? Because I didn't want to know what they think. I want to know how do Christian men Mm -hmm. actually live it out? Because, you know, the secular critics are saying this is what it does to men. So that's an empirical question. It needs an empirical answer. You need to go out and actually research Christian couples and families. And so fortunately, you know, a lot of Christian men are already doing this. They're just not being acknowledged. So the better, the better question is, how can we get the word out there that they are doing a good job when they, in fact, are authentic, you know, committed, attending church regularly and really living out their faith? The other part of that study that you briefly mentioned was the fact that uh, Christian divorce um, is not at the same rate as the rest of society. We're often told that that, that even uh, it might exceed the rate of divorce among uh, those who are non-believers, but that apparently is not the case. Well, that is the first pushback I always get, right? And so what happened is the researchers went back to the data and they made that crucial distinction between men who are committed, attend church regularly, from merely nominal Christians. Mm-hmm. And in America, we have a lot of nominal Christians, um, more than any other country. And so these are men who might check the Baptist box in a survey like this, for example. 
but they don't attend church, or rarely, if at all. It's more of a family background, a cultural background. My my students don't even know what the word nominal means, so I have to explain. It is from the Latin N-O-M, means name, so it means in name only. And these men test out shockingly different. They do fit all the to- toxic stereotypes. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They spend the least amount of time with their children. They divorce at a higher rate than even secular men, 20% higher. And the real shocker is they do have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any group in America, even higher than secular men. So this is what we're up against in the church. On the one hand, we need to be encouraging the men who are doing a good job. And the data is really showing that that's the case. But the data is also showing that there's a lot of, on the fringes of the Christian church, are a lot of nominal men who are, you might say, ruining the reputation of evangelicals because they're claiming an evangelical identity, but they're actually testing out as worse than secular men. Mm. They're taking words like headship and submission, but not giving them the biblical meaning. Instead, they're infusing meaning from the secular script for masculinity, and then they end up being even worse. We're talking this afternoon with Professor Nancy Percy. She is the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment. By the way, the book is published by Baker Books and is available. We'll make sure you have all the important details because this is one you're going to want to read. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with uh, Professor Nancy Piercy. She's best-selling author and speaker, a former agnostic. She was hailed by The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. Her latest book, and there are several, by the way, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And that may come as uh, surprising and good news to some of you, others of you who take the scripture seriously might not be surprised at all but uh, it is good news to hear that uh, that we can in fact live in peace together in a way that's honoring to God and honoring to one another well in your book toxic the toxic war on masculinity you write about uh, the fact that men are being torn between two competing scripts for masculinity what are they and where do they originate yes I thought this was fascinating it was coming out of a sociological study, and I'll give you the background to it that's not in the book. Uh, The background is that this has proven to be the most controversial book I've ever written, which took me by surprise because my earlier book, Love Thy Body, deals with things like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. These are hot-button issues. But in fact, this has proved more controversial. I taught classes on the manuscript. I led reading groups because I like to get lots of feedback. And invariably, when they told their family and friends about it, the question was, whose side is she on? That's the first thing people would ask. Whose side is she on? Hmm. And men tended to assume that a woman writing a book of masculinity would be a male-bashing feminist. And more progressive types were sure that I was some kind of angry, defensive, reactionary culture warrior. And so I put this survey right at the front, because what it says is, we can, we can affirm what's good about masculinity, but we can still think critically about the secular script and where it falls short. And, and this guy who did the study is not a Christian himself, but he gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with a very clever experiment. He asked young men two questions. First, he asked, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a, at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? 
And the sociologist said all around the world, young men had no trouble answering that. They would immediately start listing duty, honor, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, look out for the little guy, be a protector, be a provider, be responsible. And the sociologist would say, where'd you learn that? They'd say, I don't know. It's just in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, they would often say, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. And then he would follow up with a second question. He'd say, well, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, no, 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 that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. Mm -hmm. And so... So the sociologists concluded that men are kind of trapped between these two different scripts. On the one hand, they do know what it means to be a good man. It appears to be universal. It's inherent. It's innate. We would say they're made in God's image. And they do know what it means to be a good man, to use their unique masculine strengths to love and protect and provide for those that they love. Or maybe you should call it Romans 2, right? We all have a conscience. We know right from wrong. But on the other hand, obviously men also feel the pressure, a cultural pressure, to live up to what he called the quote-unquote real man, which intended to include traits that were not necessarily so positive, and that if disconnected from a moral vision, will easily slide into being toxic, things like entitlement and control and get whatever I want. The, The Andrew Tate phenomenon, right? Fast cars, fast money, fast women which is unfortunately becoming very popular with young men today. So I thought that was fascinating and encouraging, because what it means is when we talk to men about these issues, it doesn't usually work to accuse them of being toxic. Nobody really responds well to that. So what we can do is we can try to affirm and encourage and support men in that innate, inherent knowledge of what it means to be the good man. We can count on them knowing that. And that gives us a much more positive way to approach these issues. Mm. You write that uh, men are falling behind in education, employment, health, even life expectancy. We're not really paying much attention to the real problems that men face today. Are we so distracted by trying to put them into a a useful box uh, that makes them less useful that we're just um, not noticing? Or why why is it that men are falling behind? Is it to try to meet with the um, expectation that we minimize their masculinity and their ability to provide and protect and defend? Well, certainly uh, feminism has a little bit of a role to play here. My, f- my female students at Houston Christian University all identify as feminists. And when I first started working on this manuscript, invariably the first question I got was, well, aren't men ultimately going to succeed anyway, so why should we worry about their problems? You know, and that's true. They do end up being more likely to be CEOs and presidents and prime ministers and Hollywood film producers. But that's maybe 5 to 10% of men. The vast majority in terms of the, the average is actually going down. Men are doing worse, both relative to where they used to be and relative to women in issues like uh, drug addiction and alcohol addiction, in terms of mental illness, in terms of homelessness, in terms of suicide in terms of crime, 98, 95% of prison inmates are male. And even unemployment, uh, it doesn't show up in the unemployment statistics. So researchers had to dig deeper. And they tell us that male unemployment is now at Great Depression era levels. 
I was shocked because we think of that as a great crisis in American history. Mm -hmm. But male unemployment is at Great Depression era levels and their life expectancy has gone down. Women's has stayed the same. So it's not a general trend. Male life expectancy has gone down so much so that a, a magazine called The New Scientist said the major demographic factor in early death now is being male. So I think it is time for us to say, can we help men and boys? And I didn't even talk about boys. Boys are falling behind at all levels of education, right? From kindergarten on, they don't have the same fine motor control that girls do, and they have trouble operating a scissors. So already in, in kindergarten, they feel like, you know, they're, they're falling behind. They're inferior. And it goes all the way to high school and college, the average college today, 60% female, 40% male. Places like Harvard, they are quietly instituting um, a kind of affirmative action to get more male students. And same thing with graduate school, more women than men. And even professional school, like law and medicine, women are outrunning men on all levels of education. So I really think it's time for us to say it's great that women are doing so well. We don't want to sound like we think that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's not. But... One reason they're doing so well is because they had a lot of help. There was Title IX. There was a 1994 Gender Equity Act, which poured millions of dollars into equity workshops and curriculum and so on. There's been nothing like that for boys. Right now, depending on the study, there's a, either 4 or 8% more scholarships for women to go to college than men. It's time for us to say maybe we need some special programs that are geared towards men you know, and boys, their learning style, support them. We should have compassion. You know, like you said a minute ago, we all had fathers, we had brothers, we have sons and we have husbands. I would think that all of us would have an interest in helping boys and men succeed and helping them. If that means special programs to help boys succeed, I think we should be in favor of that. Yeah, absolutely. Lift all the boats. Now, your book says that criticism of men began much earlier than most of us think. When did the idea of toxic masculinity masculinity come from? Where did it come from and when? Yeah, most people think it came in the 1960s, maybe second wave feminism. Actually, it was much, much earlier. It goes back to the Industrial Revolution, because before that time, men were working alongside their families all day, their wives and children. And so the cultural ethos for masculinity focused a lot on their caretaking role. In fact, here's an interesting historical fact. Most books on childbearing and parenting were written for men. They were addressed to fathers. If you go to the typical bookstore today, they're mostly for mothers. But back then, fathers were thought to be the primary parent, and they did spend just as much time with their children as mothers did. It's hard for us to even imagine that today. Mm-hmm. So how did we lose that? It was the Industrial Revolution that took work out of the home. Men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time in American history, they were not working with their family members, people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And that's when you see the literature change as people began to protest that men's character was changing. They were losing the caretaking ethos that they had in the colonial era. They were becoming individualistic and self-interested and egocentric and aggressive and look out for number one. And, and you even find this language. They started to say that men are turning their career, their financial success, into an idol. 
people began to use that phrase, men are using, turning their work into an idol. So already then in the 19th century, you see that it was the first time that negative language was applied to the male character. Now, through the book, I go through some other stages, mm-hmm. you know, of how secularization changed the, uh, the definition of masculinity. But that was the, turn- the first turning point, which, of course, does suggest the solution, too. <laughs> if the problem is men got disconnected from their families, the solution has to be reconnecting fathers to their, their families. families. We're talking with Professor Nancy Piercy. She is the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, her latest. She's a best-selling author. The subtitle of the book, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about a fascinating book I would highly recommend, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. My guest is Professor Nancy uh, Piercy, the author of this and many other books. Um, the book is published by Baker. We'll make sure you know how and where you can connect with her and the book before our conversation ends in just a few moments. Uh, you point out in the book that the Darwinian theory of evolution normalized many of the traits in men that today are labeled toxic. Explain how that's the case and how we might respond to its impact. One of the most important turning points in the development of a secular script for masculinity. Most of us don't think of that. We think, well, Darwin evolution, that's about science, right? But no, it had a huge impact on concepts of masculinity. Darwinian thinkers began to say that the men who won out in the struggle for survival would be rugged, ruthless, brutal, savage, barbarian, and even predatory. So they began to say that getting in touch with your manhood meant getting in touch with that animal core, the beast within was their favorite phrase. And so where Christianity had urged men to live up to the image of God in them, Darwinian thinkers began to say, no, you you discover your authentic manhood by getting in touch with the inner animal nature. And so... And by the way, that's not just historical, because that thinking has come back. It was called social Darwinism, but today it's called evolutionary psychology. It just has a new label. But again, it's very popular. Uh, I'll tell you about a best-selling book. It's called The Moral Animal. Of course, you know, the idea we're just animals. And it says, the author literally says, the human male is a possessive, oppressive, flesh-obsessed pig. Giving men a book on how to have a better marriage is like giving Vikings a book on how not to pillage. And I thought, this is a best-selling book? You know, it's so demeaning to men. And there's another one as well that was an older book that was just, just reissued called Men in Marriage. And he agrees. He says that you know, the, the message of evolution is that human, human males are irresponsible, violent, cri- prone to crime, and sexually predatory. And this is where we are now. This is the kind of thinking that gives us Andrew Tate, right? If you, if you wondered where the Andrew Tate phenomenon came from, it's not out of nowhere. It's because ever since Darwin, men have been primed to think that their true nature is not, you know, the civilized Christian gentleman, so to speak, but your true nature is that you're barbarian and you need to tear off the, the thin veil of civilization, is how they used to put it. 
tear off the thin veil of civilization and get in touch with your true animal nature. Well, uh, Andrew Tate's showing us that, and uh, the, the New York Post just had an article on the new Andrew Tate, another guy named Myron Gaines, who says something very similar, who also says, for example, um, a man should never get married. He should always have several women on the side. Even if he has a main girlfriend, he should have several women because that's just man's nature. Men are just naturally sexually promiscuous and women just have to accept that. So this is the message that we're getting now from the secular script. And I help people in, in my book. I want people to sort of, I want people to get a firm grasp of what is the difference between the biblical view of masculinity and the secular script. I just got an email from a former uh, graduate student who now teaches high school. And she said, all of my male students are into Andrew Tate. They're even using Andrew Tate quotes in the, in the yearbook. And I said, what kind of school do you teach? A classical Christian school. Oh. So I thought, you see, even in the Christian world, young men are reaching out for positive, inspiring models of what it means to be a man. It's time for the church to step up and give them better, better models and then what they're getting from the secular world. Again, the subtitle of your book is How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Aside from learning the truth about what uh, the scriptures have to say as opposed to what secular society is embracing, where do we begin to to restore what has been lost in some cases within the, the Christian world and, and beyond? Yeah, well, you know, since, since um, nominal Christian men have higher rates of abuse and violence than even secular men. I do have to deal with that issue. You know, the, the really tough area where we want to reconcile the sexes is when there's out-and-out abuse. And so I, I do have two chapters on that subject. And basically, the, it used to be that women were held responsible for the relationship. And I have lots of stories from women that I interviewed who said things like, you know, I was told if you would just submit more, if you would just love more, if you would forgive more, if you would make his favorite foods, then, you know, he would blossom into the man that you want him to be. That, that's a direct quote from a pastor. And fortunately, the, the language has started to change. Theologians and therapists now are starting to say, no, the, the answer to somebody, if somebody is really willing to hurt other people to get what he wants, then just being nicer is not going to do the trick. Mm -hmm. It's like a bully. Whether it's a playground bully or whether it's a belligerent nation, you know, in international affairs, if you try to please and placate somebody who's a bully, it doesn't work. They just take that as permission to do more. And so fortunately, Christian books on the subject have started to change, and they're starting to say the answer to if there's actual sin in a marriage, the answer is Jesus' words. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if somebody is sinning against you, you need to tell them. You need to confront them. You need to tell them they're wrong. If they don't listen to you, you bring in a few witnesses. And if they don't listen to them, you bring it before the church. And if they don't listen to the church, it might be time for some kind of church discipline. So fortunately, more, more therapists and theologians now are starting to say, this is the answer to domestic violence in the Christian world. We need to... We need to support women in standing up to men who are, who are being abusive and require them to respect women in their lives. And the church needs to stand behind them on that. So I'm very thankful. I wrote this book at the right time 
Yes. When if you are in a situation like that, there are now very good resources. Um, the, read the last two chapters and find all my end notes. You'll find all the best books on the subject. And I, I think that this, this makes it a really good resources for people who are truly in troubled marriages. Even there, Christianity has the power to reconcile the sexes. Amen. Well, let me ask you how our listeners can connect with you and uh, find your book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. You can find the book on Amazon, like you can find everything <laughs> on Amazon. But um, also, if you prefer, places like ChristianBook.com. And my publisher very generously uh, redesigned my website. So come on over to my website, NancyPiercy.com. Piercy is P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. And you can browse all my other books, and you can and you can leave a message. I don't have time to read them all, but I do... I read them. I don't have time to answer them all. And so come on by to nancypiercy.com and say hello. Well, I thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to talk with us about your book today. Uh, and um, I'm just grateful for the time and effort you put into writing it so that we can all think more biblically about uh, these issues. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Again, uh, Professor Nancy Piercy, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. To our Seattle listeners, have a great night. Want to thank Pedro Bartes for producing and engineering. Tomorrow we'll talk with Greg Roman. He's the director of Middle East Forum. And on Wednesday and Thursday, the Bible League will join us for a radiothon. So I hope you'll join us as well. Have a good night. Portland, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Some of the headlines from the last couple of days. Blinken meets resistance and courtship of Egypt and Saudi Arabia on Gaza. Israeli woman tortured to death, found naked. Good chance war spreads beyond Gaza, threatening oil. Border clashes raise fear. Will Hezbollah ignite northern front? 2,000 American troops prepare for potential deployment to Middle East. Iran now considers U.S. militarily involved. Conflict tilting power balance in favor of Russia and China. Melbourne um, demonstrator shouts death to every Israeli. Switzerland refuses to take sides in divided world. Dems pressure Biden to call for Jerusalem to back down. Biden trip to Israel. More rockets fired at Tel Aviv. U.N. verge of abyss and 199 confirmed hostages. Just some of the, uh, the headlines over events that unfolded late last week. Well, the Wall Street Journal published a piece asking uh, how the Hamas-Israeli war is tilting the global power balance in favor of Russia and China, who are, it might be surprising to learn, players in all of this. Moscow and Beijing seek to ride the wave of solidarity with Palestinians while taking advantage of American distraction. Well, the writer points out that the war between Israel and Hamas isn't just risking a regional conflagration. It's also affecting the global balance of power, stretching American and European resources while relieving pressure from Russia and providing new opportunities to China. With a long-term effect of the Middle East flare-up, it's hard to predict. It depends, first of all, on whether Israel is ultimately successful in its stated goal of eliminating Hamas as Gaza's main military and political force. Another critical issue is whether Israel's diplomatic relationships in the region and the global standing of its Western supporters can survive the rising civilian casualties in Gaza and the looming horrors of urban warfare in the densely populated enclave. 
But for now, the war launched by Hamas on the 7th of October with a brutal attack on Israeli towns and villages that killed some 1,400 people, mostly civilians, is proving a boon for America's main geopolitical rivals. China, Russia, and Iran have long sought to undermine the U.S.-backed international system and are now taking advantage of America's distraction. What we're seeing is part of a shifting and moving world order. That's a quote from the former Finnish Prime Minister, Alexander Stubb, He's currently running the Finland pre- running for Finland's presidency. When the U.S. leaves power vacuums, someone is going to fill those vacuums and abandon that uh, leadership. Apparently, we have to be sure the U.S. is already back in the Middle East, showcasing its role in the indispensable partner for Israel and key Arab nations with uh, shuttle diplomacy and military deployment uh, deployment rather and engagement that enjoys bipartisan support and dissipates some of the isolationist sentiment that's been gaining ground in recent years. But still, as Washington's attention focused on the Middle East, Russia is probably the clearest beneficiary of the spreading upheaval, pointing at the mounting Palestinian deaths around 2,750 by the latest count. Moscow revels in what it calls the hypocrisy of the Western governments, which have roundly condemned Russian massacres of civilians in Ukraine, but offer only mild, if any, criticism of Israeli actions in Gaza. Russian President Vladimir Putin, whose forces, according to the Ukrainian authorities, killed tens of thousands of civilians as they besieged the Ukrainian city of Maripol for months last year, compared the Israeli siege of Gaza to that of his hometown, St. Petersburg, then called Leningrad during World War II. This is, in essence, equated uh, Israelis with Nazis. Such language, a stark departure from Putin's once warm relationship with the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is part of Russia's diplomatic effort to position the country as the leader of the global movement against the West's neo-colonialism, even as it pursues a colonial war of conquest in Ukraine. Well, any conflict that draws some attention from Ukraine, well, very much plays in favor of Russia. Lithuania's foreign minister, Gabrielis Landersburgis, uh, says the Russians may not have started it, but they have a huge interest in prolonging the conflict in Israel as long as possible. It would be a win for the Russian tactic, Russians tactically in, if, uh, in Ukraine and strategically strengthening their narrative against the Western world. Well, China, too, has embraced the Palestinian cause in a way it hadn't done in decades. Its once cordial ties with Israel are in tatters. Despite Beijing's repeated invocations of the need to combat terrorism as it uh, uh, repressed Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region, China has pointedly refrained from using the word terrorism as it describes the Hamas attack, much to Israel's dismay. Even though there were four Chinese citizens killed by Hamas and three more taken hostage, according to Israeli authorities. Well, the crux of the matter is that justice has not been done to the Palestinian people, China's foreign minister Wang Yi said Thursday in his first public remarks since the Hamas invasion triggered the war. Well, as Beijing prepares for a possible clash with the U.S. over the future of Taiwan, China's benefits when... Uh, Washington's attention once again being diverted by trouble in the Middle East, China watchers say, is to their benefit. What matters to China are the interests of China. And the most important thing for Beijing is the relationship with the United States and the way in which China could weaken the United States and the image of the United States. A China expert at the Foundation for Strategic Research in Paris, Antoine Bandaz, says... 
They will try to portray the U.S. as the factor of instability and China as a factor of peace. China's goal is to present itself to the developing nations as an alternative and as a more attractive alternative at that. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said U.S. partners in the Middle East are determined to stop the conflict between Israel and Hamas from spilling over in the region. Blinken is due to return to Israel on uh, on Monday for his second visit in a week. The war uh, launched by Hamas also deals a blow to China's main Asian rival, India which has grown much closer to Israel in recent years. Just in September, India and the U.S. announced plans for a transit corridor connecting India, the Middle East, and Europe that would run through the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Israel and become a rival to China's Belt and Road Project. But the talks on the normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, well, a key element of that plan, have been scuttled by the Gaza War and their future is now uncertain. India has invested a lot in the Middle East generally and essentially with Israel and key Arab countries such as the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Uh, The chair of the India practice at the Asia Group and former policy advisor to the Indian foreign ministry points out the normalization of relations between progressive Arab countries that are seeking to use economic and technological opportunities to modernize and Israel as part of a broader normalization of the Middle East is certainly something that India encourages for business opportunities, but also as a broader political construct. Well, for many nations in Europe, in addition to straining regional relationships and diverting attention from Ukraine, an escalation of the war could also cause an energy crisis, potentially crippling the Middle Eastern alternatives to Russian oil and gas. Bloodshed in the Middle East also carries the risk of renewed violence by Islamist militant groups at home, as happened during the campaign against Islamic State in 2020. 2014 through 2017, huge pro-Palestinian rallies have already flooded the streets of major European capitals over the weekend, with some protesters chanting in support of Hamas's objective, the elimination, the annihilation of Israel. Whenever something this intense happens in the Gaza Strip or Israel, it has consequences in Europe. Thomas Gomart, director of the French Institute of International Relations, points out, What we are seeing now is the overlapping and entanglement of different theaters. What will be the main theater for uh, Europe in the coming years? Will it be the Middle East? Will it be Ukraine? The Caucasus issues with Iran? The acceleration of crises is spectacular. And for Europe, it means having to make very brutal adjustments. Russia certainly counts on the West's attention fading away from Ukraine, where Russian forces launched a uh, so far unsuccessful attempt to seize the city of um, Avidivica shortly after the Hamas attack. Should the war in the Middle East expand to involve Lebanon and then possibly Iran and the U.S. directly, the already shrinking resources of military aid uh, slated for Ukraine could become even scarcer, a danger acknowledged by Kyiv. If the conflict will be limited in time, a matter of weeks, then in principle, we have nothing to worry about. The head of Ukraine's HUR military intelligence uh, told the Ukrainian Pravda newspaper, the Ukrainska Pravda newspaper. But if the situation drags on, it's fully understandable that there will be the certain problem with the fact that not only Ukraine will need to be supplied with weapons and ammunition, 
So far, little of the military aid rushed by the U.S. to Israel is of the kind that is needed for Ukraine. Israel's most urgent request was for interceptors for its Iron Dome anti-missile system that Ukraine doesn't operate. While Ukraine's key necessity at this point is for 155 millimeter, millimeter artillery ammunition. And overall, Israel heavily relies on its huge air force, while air power plays a limited role in the war in Ukraine. During the 50-day Israeli incursion of Gaza in 2014, the Israeli army fired only 19,000 explosive 155 millimeter shells, an amount that Ukraine consumes in as little as one week. The Israel Defense Force is very much a Western-style military with air-based firepower, which can be handled more easily. The CEO of Gaddy Consulting, a military consulting firm based in Vienna, points out. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian military remains a a Soviet-era legacy. It's a force with a majority of firepower that's ground-based, which is a lot harder for the U.S. to sustain. Well, the biggest risk uh, to Ukraine in recent weeks has been the reluctance of some Republicans in the House to authorize additional U.S. aid. And events on the ground have not made that more likely. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Just before the break, we were talking about the impact that the conflict between Israel and Hamas is likely to have on not just the um, the world as a conflagration is uh, underway, but how it will change the balance of power and the perception of the balance of power, particularly as it relates to Russia and China. Uh, says one... Um, Uh, Chief executive of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the former U.S. ambassador to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's more likely now than we're uh, going to get a big funding package that includes Israel, which means that if you want to vote against Ukraine, you've got to vote against Israel, too. And no one is willing to do that. So it's going to have an impact on how Congress moves forward with the money. And overall, he added, the U.S. should be able to support Israel and Ukraine while also retaining its commitments to Taiwan, spreading things very thin. He goes on, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We have the capacity and we are the global power that can do all three. Well, that certainly is the case, but at what expense is being asked by some Republicans? Well, if anything, the crisis in the Middle East is also a reminder of how important America remains for the region And the world, China hailed its entry into regional politics in March as it brokered an agreement on restoring diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia and Iran. But now, as it risks of uh, regional war increase, China's keeping a very low profile. And while the U.S. has rushed two aircraft carrier groups and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is flying around the region aiming to contain the conflict, it uh, illustrates just how significant this is that the United States Uh, continues to demonstrate its leadership. China's primary leverage is uh, the region, in the region rather, was access to its markets, access to its investments. It um, It is its economy and economic power. The CEO of USA Asia Center at the University of Western Australia points out, they don't yet have hard power in that region, and so no one is turning to the Chinese for how to solve their problem. So we'll see what happens next. In this region, as we uh, pray and hope that God will intervene and things won't escalate to the point where there is an all out war involving many nations, although we know from what the scriptures teach, a time will come when that will be the case. 
Well, in other news, last week, former Hamas leader Khalid Mashal called on for Friday the 13th to be a global day of jihad in response to Israel's military response to their terrorism. The unprovoked murder, uh, the murderous attacks on innocent Israelis. Well, how did his uh, day of rage pan out? Several nations, including the U.S., issued warnings alerting people to be aware of and encouraging the maxim, if you see something, say something. Well, there were several protests where a few people were arrested, but thankfully no violent uprisings or significant terrorist attacks so far. Well, thus, it would appear at this point it was not a credible threat. This also may show that the um, low regard the rest of the Islamic world has for Hamas as it didn't uh, pan out in other places as well. Well, in other news, in a blatant attempt to spread anti-Israel propaganda, Democrat Representative Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, she reposted it on X, a disinformation from Hamas. One of her uh, reposts claims Israel's uh, their airstrike targeted uh, fleeing Palestinian civilians targeted. However, it turns out that a car in a convoy that is seen exploding uh, was actually due to a car bomb placed by Hamas, not the result of an Israeli airstrike. Another of her reposts shows images of dead children who were claimed to have been victims of Israeli strikes in Gaza. But the images were, in fact, from 2013 and depicted dead Syrian children who had been gassed by President Bashar al-Assad. Clearly, the representative uh, has no qualms over propagating a false narrative to support her anti-Semitic views. Well, in other news... um, Senator Menendez and wife Farah are in hot water. The senator and his wife are in trouble. The longtime Democrat has uh, was charged with bribery last month and is now facing additional charges related to the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Uh, the senator has a long record of opposing Farah, again, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, with the latest being in 2020, when he blocked a bipartisan effort to create uh, stricter penalties for foreign governments and individuals who violate that law. It seems short-sighted to provide additional enforcement tools before we have figured out what that uh, regimen should look like, he said at the time. So before this body passes any tweaks or new tools and adds to the current patchwork of FARA regulations and exemptions, I think we should take a step back and take a comprehensive look. And we have not done that. Well, that's what he said at the time. He's now being charged with violating that very rule. House GOP has launched a probe into the president's climate core. On Friday, House Republicans launched an investigation into Joe Biden's unilaterally created American Climate Corps. The House Oversight and Accountability Committee requested documents from AmeriCorps CEO uh, Michael Smith, who was tasked to run the president's Climate Corps. At issue is a question over the legality of the new program, since Congress never gave him authorization to create it. Where's the money coming from? Well, apparently from other agencies, as one of the first actions of Climate Corps was to partner with AmeriCorps and the U.S. Forest Service to provide $15 million for the creation of Forest Corps, um, which um, plans to hire 80 people beginning next summer in order to learn about forest and grassland management. More on that in the days ahead. Well, on Friday, the White House prepared evacuation flights from Israel for the U.S. nationals. And over one million people have been ordered to evacuate from northern Gaza, the U.N. says. Hamas tells Gaza residents to defy the evacuation order at their own peril because the um, 
The Israelis will respond. A senior Hamas official admits the Israel attacks had been planned for years under the guise of governing Gaza. And a former IRS contractor pled guilty to leaking former President Trump's tax returns. Build back better. Mortgage rates hit 20-year high. Well, the American death toll is past 30 in the Israeli uh, conflict as Israel and Lebanon, the border is heating up. Hamas is blocking the mass evacuation in Gaza of, as IDF urges civilians to move south. Kassan Soleimani, who was assassinated by the U.S. in 2020, reportedly devised the terror plan we're now seeing outworked. U.S. ally Gutter's ties to terrorism is being scrutinized after the Hamas attack on Israel. MSNBC lost 33 percent of its primetime audience during coverage of the Israeli war, while Fox and CNN surged. And an airlift has been ordered by Governor DeSantis to evacuate some 300 Americans from Israel. A Republican congressman rescued 96 Americans doing the same. Now to Ukraine. Russia offered to mediate the Israeli-Gaza negotiations. Putin says there is no alternative to a two-state solution. He's a little late to the party. There's no desire on the part of Hamas for a two-state solution. That would require Israel to remain its state. A state. A six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was killed in an anti-Muslim attack in Illinois. A man simply singled them out. They were his tenants. And presidential candidate Biden, he closed the third quarter with more cash on hand than the entire GOP field. Well, there you have it. Hey, we're out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.